addressing his sermons, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might. He's there to declare to Jacob or Israel his transgression, his sin. He's here to tell the heads of the household of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. These are all ways of addressing the injustice that is rampant in the land. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Meaning they'll teach whatever you want taught for a price. They practice divination divination for money. And yet, they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountains of the house of wooded heights. So, look what's going on. All of this injustice that's taking place among God's people, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in our midst? No disaster shall come upon us. This shows just how far they've come from truly knowing Yahweh, from truly knowing the Lord. They think that they can live the way they are with the injustices and other things that they are, and yet claim relationship to God. Psalm 50, 21, God says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. As difficult as it is to fathom what God is like, truly, in the depths of his, in the triune depths of his eternal being, there still is little excuse for us to think that somehow God is like, we must understand if we're going to ever talk about the sovereignty of God, God is altogether separate from us. He is altogether different from us. He is the uncaused cause. He is the unbeginning. He had no beginning. He'll have no end. He is completely independent of us. He doesn't need us in in the way that we would typically think of way one needs another. God is complete within himself, within God's self. So the people to whom Micah is preaching have a concept of God that is not real. It's not accurate. They don't have a proper concept of God. They're not worshiping God is. They're not worshiping God as God is, and therefore they're not worshiping in spirit and truth. They become idolaters. As a result, they are not practicing justice. One follows necessarily from the other. And it's not a problem of having wrong facts about God. It's a moral problem. Idolatry is not a factual problem. Idolatry is a moral problem. Israel had every reason to know everything about God. They knew all the facts about God, all his wondrous deeds, all that he had done in the history of his people. So it's not a matter of having right or wrong facts about God. Idolatry, and we'll get into that a little bit more what idolatry is, and it'll just sort of explain itself as we're going along, is a moral problem. A.W. Tozer says, Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is, at bottom, a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. Always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it. 
and will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of mind from which it emerges. Man has and woman have such a very easy tendency to try to recreate God, so he looks, or God looks, an awful lot like us. It's one thing to think God has our strengths. It's another thing to think he has our weaknesses. And here's the problem with this. If you don't have the true God, then you don't have the gospel. As someone has said, God is the gospel. Isaiah 12, 2. Isaiah says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song and has become my salvation. God himself hasn't just saved me. He is my salvation. There's a lot in that, I bet. God is my salvation. It isn't just something he did sort of externally to me. It's this whole uniting of ourselves to his being to a degree. God is my salvation. The great problem repeated throughout Scripture is God says, I am. And man says, no, you are. Fill in the blank. God says, I am. Man says, you are. And this is not intended to be an in-depth study of idolatry. It's not necessary because idolatry is just woven throughout all of Scripture. It's the, it's the big problem. But our concept of God, again, impacts everything else we do. And that's why Jesus said, well, this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus whom you have sent. So important to know God intimately. And in the, in the text this morning, we see Judah's idolatry through the lens of what they had come to put their confidence and their hope in. We can see what kind of idols, what kind of things we might expect Judah to put in place of God by the things that they had put their hope and their confidence in, the very things that God is saying he's going to take away here in chapter 5. And he does so, he basically addresses what I would call three covenant carnal compromises. Three covenant carnal compromises. Carnal being unspiritual. God's people are compromising the covenant with their sort of carnal sense of being, with their unspiritual being. Carnal, <coughs> carnal offense, carnal defense, and carnal cult. We'll take a look at each one of these. The first thing we see here is he's talking about horses and chariots as weapons of war. And he says, in that day, in verse 8, that's how in that day, so we want to know, okay, what day? What's he talking about? So we've got to go back a little to 7 and 8 of that same chapter. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which delay not for man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep which when it goes through treads down in tears and pieces and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and your enemies shall be cut off. We, like them, are in all kinds of places. We are, we are Yah's people. We are Yahweh's people. We are, as one person put it, we are like do God's people are to the world. Salubrious, beneficent effect on the nations. We have a salubrious, beneficent effect on the nations, or so we should. This is what they're supposed to be, but what they are not at this time. It's what we, you and I, are to be, as Paul put it, shining his lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 
And then, of course, Israel will also conquer, ultimately, in the Lord. And the, uh, the church, the true Israel, uh, will come to fulfill all those promises that God began to make way back with Abraham. So, <coughs> Judah, as well as Israel, came to rely on the weapons of warfare. This is the whole thing of chariots and horses. It basically helped them to get what they want. Chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 50, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, our God. But not at this time they didn't. Not at this time they didn't. We can think about what our reliance is on what we perceive as power. What do we feel empowers us? Where do we get in a sense of empowerment that's sort of, in some ways, outside of ourselves, some within? Some, I think some things that come to mind are things like reputation, personality type, the things that work for us. We all know what works for us. It could be beauty. It could be health. It could be intellect, character, charisma. Things that we know draw people to us and that give us a perceived advantage over the person so that we might manipulate to get the things. It's a sense of power. It shouldn't be, but we do take a sense of empowerment from the ways we have learned to manipulate others and to get the things that we want. It may be good gifts and skills, but they become a false sense of hope as we build up over time doing this, these subtle little things. Over time, we build up in ourselves an idolatry. And we begin to think of God in the same way. And this is why, for example, I was discussing before service today, one time I was involved in one of these fundamental independent, independent Baptist churches. It was King James only, and you were, you were expected to wear a Bible, to, a, a tie to church. You were expected to wear a tie to church, right? Because God's people would wear ties, you know, because God's kind of like us. Jesus would have had a, you know, an Armani suit back in the day. Even doctrine. We can begin to treat our doctrine instead of as a way of doctrine should be a sort of system of understanding what God has revealed about himself. And it's easy enough for Christians of all stripes to take their doctrine and turn that into the thing that empowers them and emboldens them rather than relationship to God, God's self. I think ideologies and social movements are also a form of carnal offense, unspiritual offense. And our culture today Claiming victim status in various ways has become empowering. If you're a victim for any reason today, if you're an oppressed person, so-called, in any way today, you become a person of very great power because people yield in fear and give up to that pressure. Okay, That's why Google is doing some of the things it's doing. With uh, That's why Coca-Cola is doing the stuff that it's doing. That's why a lot of companies are bowing and sort of pressure... Critical theory, gender theory, wokeism have become the horses and chariots of people attempting to address what they see as historical and systemic injustice and to get what they want. But what they want is to feel good about themselves as themselves, as defined by themselves. And if anyone disagrees, then they're feeling good about themselves as compromised and someone must be held to account for that. So while they shouldn't feel good about themselves as they pursue this particular lifestyle or they make this decision about themselves or they try to determine for themselves what gender they are or they try to determine whether or not they identify as this or that particular race, those are the things that they have begun to think come to define them as a person 
rather than what it means to be created in the image of God. Because they don't know God, they don't know what it means to be a person so much either. But they're not going to have you compromise their sense of well-being. Somebody has to pay for that. Because if we have a wrong concept of God, then we must necessarily and consequently develop a wrong concept of human identity and worth. So relationships are ruined and chaos and turmoil ensue and justice is distorted. We cannot be a just society in this way. The gospel is what unites divided people. The gospel is the power of God. You know, Ephesians, Paul says that the great mystery of the gospel is this, the Jew and Gentile are united, brought together in one man. That's what the great mystery of the faith is. The great mystery of the gospel is that Jew and Gentile, so radically different, are brought together and united in one person. And so that therefore there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, black nor white, etc., etc. It doesn't mean that those distinctions don't exist in people. It means they're not meaningful necessarily and certainly not primarily to who we are. And so on another note about horses and chariots or weapons of war, we sh- as Christians should be concerned about just wars. We as, as citizens should be concerned that we're not using weapons of war uh, in inappropriate ways. I won't get into that just war theory or anything, but it's just a thought that I had while going through this. And I think that if we're to be concerned with justice and if we're encountering the confidence that can be placed in the, v- in the vehicles and the weapons of war, then we as Christian people ultimately concerned with justice as God is ought to be concerned with whether or not, along with other things, we should be concerned about some of the crazy things they want to teach our children in school and we should be concerned about whether or not we carry out just military action. I won't begin to argue about what that is or isn't, but that it is something. So that's that sort of unspiritual offense, that sense of empowerment that comes from things that demonstrate a lack of confidence in God and a full confidence in something else, not God. Whether it's a material thing, or more likely, a personal character issue. And then we have sort of a sense of, in the scripture here, we have the Israelites with a very unspiritual sense of defense, reliance on what they perceive to be protection. What did they think was protecting them? Well, when war was imminent in that day, people living in the country and in remote villages fled to the cities, which were built on hills, which had very thick, nearly impenetrable walls. Think of a, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, think of the Helm's Deep, okay? That, that kind of a thing. And th- these were very difficult to attack and certainly very difficult to bring down. And the text indicates, because God's going to take it out, the text indicates that people put their trust in that defense rather than in God. And if they're doing it with that, they're certainly doing it with other things. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. It's wonderful how God has an answer for everything, and that answer is God. Things that we falsely reassure ourselves with. To what do we run for protection? And it might be for literal physical protection, but in what ways do we retreat into ourselves to find some sense of I'm okay because of fill in the blank? Not I'm okay because God is for me, not against me, even if we have that verse in us. But at a sort of a deeper, sort of more psychological level, what sort of things am I... 
Am I confident that make me feel I'm okay? And that could be a lot of things too. It can be jobs. It can be homes. It can be health again. It can be money. There could be a lot of things that make us feel, well, I'm okay. How do we assure ourselves that we're safe and that we're okay? Our constitutional rights are fantastic. And I'm, I'm convinced, you know, republic, you know, a, 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 you know a, a democratic republic is probably the single best form of governance ever devised in the mind of man. But we do not dare place our trust and hope in that alone or even be very careful how we blend it with our faith, knowing that even if those things fail us, God's sovereignty is not compromised. Our ultimate well-being is not, and by that I mean our status as God's people, our identity as God's people, what it means to be redeemed, what it means that we're going to participate in, in the triune reality for all eternity. It may mean some very bad earthly things, and we should certainly by all means, you know, this is a constitutional government is the government God has established and set up or is allowed certainly in America, and it's good government to follow, and we should do that. But there's a lot of things. We wouldn't be much different than, and there's a certain sense in some, some people certainly use the Constitution as a chariot <laughs> or as a weapon of war, don't they? When the Constitution is weaponized. You see, we can't have a just society. The Constitution does not make a just society, right? I mean, wonderful as it is and brilliant as it is. And so, you know, um, so able was it to grasp the realities of human nature and, 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 and provide some forming structural document for our country, it cannot create a just person. Something kind of hit me this morning. I take one of these every day. Two of them, actually. Superior men's multi. <laughs> but it's called Adam. I, I had done some research some time ago. It's called Adam. And it struck me, you know, every day I take into myself a little bit of this Adamic nutrient, right? And we're like that in life, too. Every day we're surrounded. We're in a culture that is sort of, um, that sort of, that, fills us up or offers us this sort of Adamic nutrient every day. This is how you can succeed. This is the way you can be this kind of successful person. This is what it means to be a person, okay? Uh, informing, telling somebody that it's okay for, for you, as a, that it's okay, okay that, that it's psychologically healthy and part of God's plan for human identity for you to call yourself a woman when you're a man is to take the Adamic soft gel, <laughs> you know? And, and, and there's a lot of things like that that we can go to the world, and we do, on a regular basis to get affirmation for the things about ourselves that we have come to believe are our means of security and being well off. When what we need to be doing, of course, all the time is taking in, we need a Christos <laughs> soft gel <laughs> nutrient. We, we take in the word of God. We, take in the, we, we fellowship with the people of God. We meditate on his word, you know, the various things that God has given us as nutrient. <laughs> so I'm still going to take those, but I am a little shook by it this morning when I was looking at it. I had to go add that into the sermon after the fact because it was. We can gauge what we're trusting in the most, I think, at any given time by our response to what threatens or violates 
our perceived sense of well-being. We can get a real good idea of what we're really trusting in, fundamentally, foundationally, by our response to what threatens or violates our perceived defenses. And the things that regularly make us angry could be symptomatic of some idol in the heart, for example. Okay, the things that make us worried, um, and I, I know there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of mental and, and physical. There's, uh, anxiety is a complex thing. It certainly isn't just a lack of faith. It's got a physical component and an emotional component and a biological component and, and all kinds of things. But the thi- even the things that make us happy can reveal to us what we're sort of taking rest in, what we're taking some defense in. But Again, the things that make us react. How do we react? That tells us a lot about whether or not I believe in a sovereign God. You know what I mean? How many times you got to kick the snowblower and convince yourself God is still sovereign? (laughs) Carnal or unspiritual cult. Now, by cult, I don't necessarily mean you know some you know Waco, Texas branch Davidian thing. Cult is just a term that refers to the worship life of any so-called religion. So if we say, you know, the cult of Christianity just has to do with what the practices of our faith are, etc. We're very used, I know, to the sort of derogatory uh, definition of that. But So, and best to understand this, I think, is dealing in the spiritual realm in a way that is outside of God's spirit. Right? There is a spiritual realm. I know this isn't news to anybody. And it shouldn't be news to anybody either that it's not all benevolent. <laughs> The spiritual realm is not filled with, with benevolent beings. In fact, much of it is malevolent, right? Dark spirits, evil powers, the prince of the power of the year, spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places, as Paul talks about in Ephesians. So there is a spiritual... And in Israel, they constantly were trying to tap into that in a number of ways. I mean, you can think of when Saul... He put an end to all the mediums, but then he went to a medium himself to try to bring up the spirit of um, Samuel. So people attempt to access the spiritual world to get what they want, and that's why they do it. There's some, there's some, some benefit that they're seeking for themselves, or they want to know something. We have today mediums. There are people that go around and pack stadiums, right, with the claim that they can speak to the dead or communicate with the dead. And quite possibly, they are communicating with something spiritual that is very dangerous. This is not a benign activity. I hope nobody in here sort of does those things or even goes to so-called fortune tellers. That is a spiritual world that has been tapped into that is extremely dangerous because it is a world that God has forbidden, knowing that there is a, you know, again, you got to remember that dark spirits are very deceptive and they want your destruction. The devil has come but to kill and destroy, right? And so are his legions of wickedness. And this is forbidden throughout Scripture. Sorcery is forbidden throughout Scripture. Sorcerers, even in the book of Revelations, the sorcerers will end up in the lake of fire. God very much knows that we need to engage the spiritual dimension, which is why we're born again which is why we're spiritual beings and not just natural sort of carnal beings. Scripture says, John says in this, in this first letter, chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That means you need to know the Scripture. That means you don't just listen to every idiot that says something spiritual. 
But many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20-22, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now this is one of those verses that's been misused a lot, unintentionally. People take this part away from it and say, well, we have, I, I once, uh, I was going into a package store for something, and the pastor of that church I mentioned before was like, you know, you really shouldn't be seen going in and out of there because, you know, Scripture tells us to abstain from every appearance of evil. And people use that on a regular basis and unintentionally impinging on the liberty of Christians. This has nothing to do with what individual Christians think is evil, even though most of us can agree to what is blatantly evil, but there certainly is space for Christian liberty. This is in a very specific context. Okay? So, I don't know how this could be misused in a million and one ways. We've got to abstain from every appearance of evil. You've got to abstain from everything that makes me uncomfortable, Pat. No, we don't. I'm, I would try to be sensitive to that. But you've got to read the whole verse, right? The whole two verses. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. So prophecies are people speaking the word of God. These are the things of God. Someone's claiming to speak. This is what God says. And we're told to test all that. And whatever they have to say that's good, hold fast to it. Whatever's evil, abstain from it. See, context is everything. So that means that we should be able to, everyone, should be able to discern at some point, not necessarily right away, but the goal of part of our Christian life as the Great Commission, if we're going to teach the nations to obey all things whatsoever Christ commanded, is to know what God has said about a particular thing. So when someone makes a claim, and this is why we have, this is why we have leaders in the church, this is why we have elders, to protect the uh, you know, doctrinal purity. But again, it does assume that we have a spiritual mind, which we do in Christ. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see a very specific reference to sort of idolatry, even though these things we're talking about, this dependence upon horses and chariots, this dependence on fortified cities, is itself the fruit of idolatry. He says, I will, uh, I will cut off your carved images, your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I'll root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. Once again, a misconception and a misrepresentation of God as God is. That's why God said in the Ten Commandments not to make any graven image. Don't think that you can make something that fully represents God. Do not think that you can make... Jesus is the only thing that fully represented God. He is the exact image of God, Scripture says in the book of Hebrews. But pagans worship things because they believed that God was in those things. They didn't think of God as over and above. They didn't think of God as sort of outside of creation. Right? God created all things. God is outside of that. He's not bound by creation. He's not limited by creation. But in the paganism of the day and much paganism of now, the belief is that God is in all things and he can't exist outside of all things. So God is in that chair and he must necessarily be in that chair, part of the wood. So to venerate those objects was in a sense to venerate God, the pagan God itself, to move that God to provide rain or you know food or whatever it may be. So there was no real distinction between the created thing and the creator. And Asherah was the fertility goddess. So Asherah poles that you read about all throughout scripture were places that were people would go to worship, including God's people, to worship this God of fertility, and they would include themselves in sexual abominable practices around those trees and do those things. And notice he said, the work of your hands 
which is what our brother read from Isaiah earlier, the work of your hands, this very idea that you're going to make a God, part of it you're going to worship and bow down to, part of it you're going to throw in the fire. It's, in, in, it's, you know, so God just has such a way of just pointing out to us, do you, do you see how silly you are? Aren't you being quite ridiculous? But it doesn't have to be that we're making a particular wooden image. Again, what we have in the way we express our things, ourselves, the way that uh, what, we, what we use as our sense of empowerment, what we think is our sense of defense, even the way that we conduct our own sort of worship at times, these might be all things that are based on a faulty image of God. And that's not, no, that's not a little thing. We tend to ascribe our strengths to God, our wants as God wants, our approach to things as if it's God's approach to things. We do that. And this is going to impact our prayer life and our fellowship. We can think that God is too much like us and therefore unwittingly fashioning him in our own image. How insistent are we at times with almost a God-like authority? One commentator said, but more sophisticated people today are more apt to recreate an image of God in their minds by redefining him in terms acceptable to the philosophical beliefs and modern cultural assumptions. So putting aside from it wooden things and all that stuff, right? The most sophisticated idolater among us, and we are all at times very sophisticated idolaters, Redefining God in terms acceptable to their philosophical beliefs and modern cultural assumptions. This is evident in arguments over God's gender by feminists, his racial features by minorities, his limited power by those who have an open view of God. Open theism is this notion that we, God has in some ways hasn't fully defined himself, incapable of fully revealing himself. He's, he's potentially changeable by the creation is what it comes down to. And rejection of eternal judgment by universalists. Those are gods of their own making, after their own image. Why? I don't know. Maybe they just prefer that there not be eternal judgment. Maybe they prefer there not be eternal punishment. Maybe they don't like the fact, you know, you hear this language all the time about the, the, you know, the white patriarchy and all this kind of thing, <laughs> not realizing there wasn't a single wasp, <laughs> there wasn't a single white Anglo-Saxon Protestant back in Mesopotamian ancient times. <laughs> These are all Semitic peoples, you know. But they have to, because people know that if there's a, if there's a, people know that, everyone knows that what they need, what they're insisting upon, what they're arguing for, needs to be authoritative. Right? People have to assume that what they're saying is authoritative and that it, and that it, it obliges you and I to agree with them. Nobody just sort of puts an argument out there and says, ah, you know, you should sort of take it or leave it. Everybody's position, particularly the ones that stand firm in it, have a particular sense of authority behind what they're saying. They don't think it's okay for you, uh, for them, but not for you. They insist that it, it's necessary for you. Okay? They insist that it's necessary for you. Which, again, why is there so much trouble over, you know, the whole gender identity thing? I identify as a woman, the man says, therefore you must also, because my thoughts about myself are, they carry the force, the authoritative force of God. And we could add up the examples. So God is going to kill these gods. God is in the business of killing gods, little g. 
what he does. That's what he did in so many of the plagues. I mean, each one of those plagues was in one way or another a mockery of one of the many gods that the Egyptians worshipped. He says, I'm going to cut off, I'm going to throw down, I'm going to root out, I'm going to destroy horses and strongholds and sorceries and fortune tellers and Asher image. I'm going to destroy it, I'm going to annihilate it, I'm going to wipe it out. That's why Jesus was able to say what he said. There's not one stone that's going to stand upon another because all the Pharisees in their hearts were idolaters. If we are idolaters, if we are not what God has intended us to be, which we can't be without properly knowing him, then we really can't fulfill what is almost a sort of one of the central themes of Micah, which is chapter 6, verses 7, 8. I'm chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. <coughs> I'm sorry, 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? With, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, first thing on the list, and to love kindness, which is steadfast love, it has to do with covenantal love, and to walk humbly with your God. You can't do that with a wrong image of God. You see? Years ago, I had friends who his, their son, <laughs> a little guy, seven or eight or something, and he was just a jerk with this particular truck that he liked. He liked this little toy truck. His sister would try to play with it. He'd take it away from her. He'd hit it with her. He hit it with her more than once. So one of these times when he hit her with the truck, the mother made him sit down at the counter. She put the truck there. She went in the other room and got a hammer, and she came out and smashed it to pieces right in front of him. End of, end of, end of truck God. <laughs> right? God is doing that. I mean, the things that we could do, the gods that we form in our minds, and I'm, again, I'm not giving parenting advice on that. I thought it was a neat example. It's a neat example when you think about what God ultimately did to punish idolatry in his son. A lot more severe. Yah is the God killer. God will destroy any of our idols. God will deal with any false conceptions of him that we have. Why? Well, because he loves us so. Because he loves us so. Because he has to help us to know him as he truly is. And he knows for every individual there's a whole lot of things in the way of that at times. Because he wants us to know because he, Scripture says God is jealous for us. The jealousy of God is holy commitment to his honor, glory, and love that manifests itself in the salvation of his people and the just condemnation of all who stand in opposition to him. That's the jealousy of God. Exodus thirty-four fourteen, Or you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. One of the names of God is Jealousy. One of the names of God in Scripture is Jealous. Whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He is very jealous for His people. Thank God that God is. Then in verse 15, we see Him say, And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that do not obey. So certainly the 10 through 14 were on God's people, His believing people, His covenant people. Interestingly, Bruce Walkie translates this as, I will avenge my sovereignty. I will avenge my sovereignty. I will avenge this impingement upon my sovereignty. 
You must know that I am sovereign. You must know what sovereignty means. You must know what it means for me to be altogether apart, altogether different, altogether separate. And then to know what it means in all its triune intensity. And this may include Israelites. This may include some Israelites. It's important to note, though, that anger and wrath. God still has these. God hasn't put off anger and wrath. It's an appropriate response to those who transgress His sovereign rule, who do not regard Him as holy. It's not just an Old Testament concept of an angry, wrathful God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, speaking of God's people who are to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Because wrath is coming on those who obey not the gospel. It is coming. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God is on that person. The wrath of God is going to remain in that person. The wrath of God is going to be fully lived out in that person. But take a look at the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1. And just some portions here of 18 through 32. I won't read the whole thing. But Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, right? Because people loved and worshipped and served the the creature rather than the creator. Okay, and they did not ascribe to him what God clearly revealed about himself is worthy of honor and worship and adoration, right? And so God does some things as a result. This is judgment. This is wrath. Remember now, we're under the context of God revealing his wrath. What does God's wrath look like? People become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts become darkened. That's wrath. That's the wrath of God. And we need to think of what it means for the wrath of God. We don't maybe think that that's as, 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 as awful as it is, but to become futile in our minds. Now, we know what people that, I mean, unf- the, the horror of, of, and I'm not saying this is judgment, of course, but think of, I'm trying to think of what can we relate to. We can think of the horrors of dementia, right? How people slowly lose their mental capacities, Right? through, you know, again, no, no fault of their own, just no genetic things and whatnot, but we can see all the time foolishness and things around us. Therefore, God gives them up. This is his wrath. The wrath of God gives people up to, gives uh, uh, the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So because they don't honor him, they don't seek repentance, they don't seek his help, they don't, God gives them up to that impure lust so that they engage in homosexual practices. The wrath of God homosexuality is a manifestation of the wrath of God in that person. But let's not stop there. Let's not stop there. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and remember, because this this goes all the way back to verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Look, he gives them up to a debased mind to do what shouldn't be done. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless. The wrath of God abides on people that act this way all the time. That tells you that the wrath of God is on them. There's no... They're without God and without hope, the Scripture says, in this present world. Which is why we've got to bring the gospel to them. Which is why we share the gospel. Which is why we carry out the Great Commission. Now, the wrath of God is going to be even in all its fullness and all its hot uh, indignation when it's finally poured out 
in the day of God's wrath, it says, in revelation of the righteous indignation of God. But in the meantime, the wrath of God is evident in people's sinful, horrible conduct. That's wrath. It's wrath to not be a God image bearer. People don't think of it that way. There's a certain level of punishment in itself in that, that you don't get to be an image bearer. There's nothing greater than being an image, a representative of God, one who represents Him, one who bears His image. Because when God decided to create and make the world and everything, He was just pouring into that characteristics and attributes of Himself. We don't get to be partakers of the divine nature. That's wrath now, and it's going to be much worse to come. By we, I mean not me, not you who profess and who genuinely have Christ. The nations who, not obe- who do not obey. So in that day it was the surrounding nations. And now it's the nations who won't submit and repent, which is why we have the Great Commission, and we have to go into all nations and, pre- nations and preach. But it's not just geographically bounded, because God's people are everywhere, and unbelievers are everywhere. And everywhere God will execute his wrath. I like the line from the line the witch in the war ro- wardrobe when <clears throat> little Susan is talking. She says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he? I, st- I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Bieber. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. I tell you, he's the king. He's not. God is not safe, but he is good. Right? Look at Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Again, under the subject of the wrath of God. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Remember that. God is going to repay with affliction people that afflict his church. God will do things the Constitution can't. In whatever way this government or any government afflicts its people, or enemies of God's people afflict their people, God is going to afflict them. And to grant relief to us who are afflicted as well as to us. When? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's what we're waiting on. That is wrath. But let's wrap up our time with the gospel as we find it in Micah. Just a chapter, uh, half a chapter earlier back in Micah chapter 5, since God is dealing with these things, God also always puts out there the gospel in some way before he tends to put out the warnings about things. And in verse 2 to 5, we find an ancient form of the gospel. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Remember that Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore we shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return, all the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock 
in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The God killer, Jesus, Colossians 2.14, he disarmed the rulers in authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So our naked God, bloodied, beaten, ravaged on the cross, who you would think would be the penultimate manifestation of humiliation and shame. No, in that moment, he was putting to shame the rulers and authorities, spiritual rulers and authorities. Jesus could do naked, beaten, scarred, and bleeding to death what you and I could never do in our strongest, mightiest days full of Adam's soft gels. We could never do what Jesus was able to do, beaten within inches of his life, naked in front of his family and friends. That's power. John 12, 31 to 32, Jesus talking about his coming crucifixion. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the world, the ruler of this world, Satan, be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, crucified, I will draw people to myself. Revelation 12, 10 to 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers, the devil, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And so that's why Paul says to the Corinthian believers to flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. Interesting, you know when he says that? He says it right after, there's no temptation taking you except which is common to man. But God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond which you are able. But he will with the temptation make a way to escape. And we always think, oh, that's great. You know, God can free us from temptation and all that. And then he follows it up with, therefore, flee idolatry. Because if you don't go to God... If you're, if you're an idolater, God can't keep you from the temptation. God can't do that. John told the believers, keep yourself from idols, when he wrapped up his letter. We're not beyond this. Calvin astutely observed, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. So pay attention to your life and to your doctrine this week, and know whether Yah is the center of your reality. Or if you have a God made in your own image. Scripture tells us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But we can co-label with Christ to do that. We can, we can be accomplices to God's yah killing. We can be an accomplice to God's killing of, the, of, of idols. And let's just close with this. As our <coughs> Josiah and Mickey come forward. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. Amen. And Lord, this is our prayer today, our recognition. Reveal to us what you would reveal to us through it. Help us to think through it in the course of the week and be strong and mighty, O Lord, to put to death any God that stands between in you. Amen. Please stand.